Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Just when I finish my to-do list... We need more chips, Mom! Honey, I need a lot of chicken. Something else comes up. That's when I use Instacart to help get everything we need from BJ's Wholesale Club. Delivered right to our door in as fast as one hour. And then finally I can relax. Mom! I think we're out of toilet paper. Time for another BJ's order. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code BJ's Wholesale 10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Additional terms apply. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. everyone, yours truly, William Eric Alexander, all my friends call me and Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV Channel 77 as we broadcast from italknet.com from the Phil Giannetti Studios high atop High Street in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. If you're looking for a quality pre-owned vehicle, give Chip a call. The number is 724-785-6800 or stop by his website, philgiannettimotors.com. Well, Tonight's going to be a fun program. It's going to be a serious program. It's going to be a humorous program. And we're going to be talking to a former writer of The Tonight Show who worked for Jay Leno for 20 years. Now, what's interesting about this, 25 years ago, I had the opportunity to interview the creator of The Tonight Show, a gentleman by the name of Steve Allen. Little did I know I'd be talking to a writer from a later version of the program but anyway that's my tie-in to the tonight show if anybody cares like five separations of uh, jay leno or jimmy fallon or whatever you want to say was steve allen but anyhow let's go to the phone lights right now and let's talk to frank king frank how are you doing on this uh well uh, thursday judging from your opening uh judging from your opening, somebody used to do morning radio good <laughs> lord man i used to do morning radio i used to do talk radio i used to do pretty much everything well, I actually did a morning show in Raleigh, North Carolina on WRD 106, the home of rock and roll. It was a number one morning show when I got into town and became the co-host. And I drove that baby in 18 months to number six. Oh, wow. Fired. So how did you get from there yeah. to comedy? Well, actually what happened was uh, the radio came second. Okay. I Fourth grade, told my first joke, said I wanted to be a comedian. High school, I was first person ever to do stand-up comedy at the Senior Talent Show in 1975, and I won. 
and told my mom I was going to be a comedian. She said, well, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do after college. You can be a goat herder for all I care, <laughs> but you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. That's good. So I went, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of uh, degrees, and then married my high school sweetheart. Couldn't find a job because most of the recruiters realized I was a clown and who's going to hire me. And so I got a job with her father's insurance company. They made the mistake of moving us to San Diego where there was a comedy store. Okay. And an open mic night, beginning of the end of my insurance career and my first marriage. And I did my open mic night and said to myself, as I was on stage doing the jokes, uh, I'm home. I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. About a year and a half later, um, ex-wife, new girlfriend, booked a bunch of bunch, 10 weeks on the road and kind of this is Okay. Asked my girlfriend if she wanted to come along on my professional car. We said, yeah. So we uh, put everything in storage we couldn't fit into my tiny Dodge Colt. Quit our jobs, gave up the apartment, hit the road. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, roughly seven years each. Wow. And Back then, they put the comics up in what they called a comedy condo. Rather than get a hotel room, okay, they had a condo that a week, cleaning service. So I not only opened up for and worked with uh, Seinfeld, Dennis Allen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, and Dana Carvey, and Adam Sandler, and Kevin James. We also lived together, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, for a week at a crack. It was an amazing. You know, we were mid, mid-20s to mid-30s, and it was just an amazing time to be young and not on the road. Then I got the job. I got the job offer at Raleigh. Radio okay. station as a comedy club thing came to, began to come to a halt. Because uh, I mean, I'd been on the show a number of times when I passed your time to comedy, and I always said, hey, man, if you guys ever need a co-host. So I got the gig, and then that ended. So I went into the corporate market, which is a rubber chicken circuit after lunch. Okay. And making really good money till the recession. And the uh, bottom dropped out. Work dropped off about 80%. My wife and I, we worked for 25 years in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and I found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Ooh. Spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Okay. Well, I'm uh, glad. Because this would be a very quiet yeah, interview too, if you it. did. I mean, honestly. That's right. <laughs> From beyond, I'd have. I, hey, uh, I've had a, a friend of mine. I've had a psychic John Edward on the program a few weeks ago. We may have had to do it that way. I mean, that would have been fine, but uh. that would have been fine. <laughs> uh, no, and then a friend of mine, friend of mine who had, um, from Philadelphia, who had never seen my keynote, saw me a month or so ago do it and say, you know, spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger. And he's a comic and a speaker, and he came up afterwards. Afterwards, he goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, because you're trying to sound a little less disappointed. <laughs> Which is in my keynote on suicide prevention. So that's how I, I my grandmother died by suicide. My great aunt died by suicide. Oh. It runs in the family. It's called generational depression and suicide. Okay. And, and I myself have two mental illnesses. One's a depressive disorder, better, better known as depression. Okay. And one that's a little more rare called chronic salad. It means for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as this problem's large, small. And when I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbid. One, get it fixed. Two, buy three. I just kill myself. That's 
always coming up with options in my head and for people like for me and people don't like me. So, and oftentimes when I speak after the event, somebody will come up and they have that condition that they didn't know it had a name. Okay. They thought they were just some kind of freak. They thought they were alone, and the relief is cool to find out it has a name. They're not alone. They're not a freak. Now, the, the, and I've heard this because you've heard Robin Williams, who committed suicide a few years ago, and other comedians that have, have ended their lives early. Is it is it, I don't want to say is it predominantly among comedians, but are the comedians the ones that we see it in most because they're the most visible to society? Is that why they got into comedy? Uh, well, um, it's, Probably, maybe the reason why we got into it, at the heart of every joke is some kind of pain. Some Right. Um, there's an old, old saw about uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. Okay. The, and I, we lost two comics uh, for last month, one week. And they do, entertainers in general have a higher rate of, do a podcast called The Suicide Prevention Punchline, where we interview comics and other creatives and clinicians because, because it happens so often with people, you know, creative people, um, believe that the reason for that is is that some people that creativity, the wiring for that, is tangled up in the wiring for the mental illness. I did, I did a TED talk called Mental with Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness, because every Everybody I met who was an entertainer or an entrepreneur or creative in any way, they tended to have a mental illness to go along with it. And I thought to myself, this cannot be a coincidence. And a friend of mine has got an expression. He said, two kinds of cops, diagnosed, undiagnosed. Right. So I think there is, there is a connection there, and I believe it is. It has to do with um, the mental with benefits X. It's all about how I believe if you're not completely dysfunctional with a mental illness, you often have what amounts to a super some kind. Okay. I now, said that to my sister, and she, she goes, yeah, we're not the X-Men. We're the Zen X-Men. <laughs> now, I, I ask you this question. Are, are you seeing that a lot of people may be misdiagnosed? Because the reason I ask this, you see all these pharmaceutical commercials on TV, and if you have this, you may need to take this, so on and so forth. And... Are they being misdiagnosed because they're telling their doctor what the TV commercial is telling them and they're not getting the proper treatment? Or is this a good thing because now people are becoming more aware of the problems that uh, mental illness may cause? No, I think the pharmaceutical commercials television are a bad thing. There are only two places in the world where they allow the belief, the United States and Australia. Oh, okay. And you're exactly right. It, it, people are going in and telling their doctors what they need. Here's a solution for that, by the way. There's a DNA test, cheek swab test, like Ancestry.com. Yeah. You get a cheek swab test, you send it off, and they they try to match the psychotropics for your condition, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever it is. They try to match your DNA with the best psychotropic for your metabolism. Interesting. So, it, and, and, yeah, and I promise uh, the other day on a plane, and I mentioned that to her, and she goes, Frank, you like 200 bucks for that. You don't have to have a prescription. She worked for Rite Aid. She goes, you get a Rite Aid for 40 bucks. So that's what I tell people is, look, don't listen to the t commercials. 
Right. Um, if you need an antidepressant and, and whatever they prescribe for you is not working, then take the cheek swab test and see if you can't figure out which one works best with your metabolism. It emanates a lot of you know, a lab rat. Uh, go on, taper off. Go on, taper right, off. Right, right. So, and and a lot of times that go on, taper off mentality or that solution can actually cause more harm than good because you're on this emotional up and down until you can get leveled off. And that's not yeah. good for the individual either. No, not good for the individual. Um, you know, there's the uh, suicide portion of this equation. 47 thousand people died in the U.S. last year of suicide. That's one every 11, uh, five an hour. And, and of course, what's the big uh, medical problem today? Oh, we had six, uh, and it's tragic, but we had six, six people die of vaping. of vaping, yes. Hell, five people, yeah, the last hour, five people died of suicide. Where's the big push? And, and, and that's so, really interesting that you talk about that, because I don't think... Mental Ill, mental health and mental illness issues have always been that taboo subject that we don't talk about. And you don't want to yeah. tell people that you're dealing with a therapist or you're taking uh, psychotropic medication to help you deal with these situations. And the thing is, it's more it, it's probably affecting more people than we'd ever know because it's and, and they don't even know it because they're they have a taboo or a stigma by going to a doctor to find out a way to help themselves. And instead, they're either self-medicating themselves through alcohol and drugs, through nicotine and through um, I mean, whatever else substance is out there. And if they would actually just go see somebody and actually get the proper treatment, they'd probably be a lot better off and live a lot longer. And what I say in my keynote is it's mental illness today is sort of like alcoholism was 60 or 70 years ago. These alcoholics were anonymous because there was a, it was believed there was a character flaw or a moral failing. Right. Where mental illness is, for a lot of people, there's a stigma involved with mental illness, a separate stigma involved with thoughts of suicide. So that's why that's why when somebody dies by suicide, you hear their friends say, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he reach out? Um, you know, he was the happiest guy. We're great actors, by the way. Uh, <laughs> nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal until I was age 52 when I did my first TEDx and came out on YouTube. Right. Uh, not even my wife and family. Uh, I, my wife's about to push the button to you know, play my uh, TEDx on YouTube, and I said, look, before you hit that button, I want a couple of things that you're going to hear, and I don't want you to hear them through the, right. you know, watching me on YouTube. Why were you afraid to come out to your family, or were you afraid? Uh, I wasn't afraid. I just didn't, I don't know that I, I've been depressed for a long time. Um, first thoughts of suicide during my first marriage. Okay. And which is one of the reasons I got out, I was, I was, Married to the wrong woman. I was in the wrong business. I was selling insurance, which is a great business, but it wasn't for me. I thought I had this thought that that if I don't get, if I don't do something, make some changes, I'm myself sooner or later. Wait a minute. If that's the case, I got to divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So, and I've I've got a TED talk TED talk on that called "Suicide: The Secret of My Success." Um, I treated it with an over over the counter. Supplement called SAMe. You can buy it at Costco. It's good on mild depression. It's also good for your liver and your joints. Okay. And that, that took the edge off for me most days. Um, 
the the question is, well, I'll tell you why. After I put the gun in my mouth in 2010, the reason I didn't go see a psychologist was because that was before the ACA, the uh, you know the um, Affordable Care, Care Act. Act, yeah. And back then, the psychological benefit on a, even a good insurance policy was like half of a psychologist in a year. Okay. And back then, pre-existing conditions meant a lot. And I already have high cholesterol okay. and uh, heart disease. And <laughs> I just didn't, I, even ironically, on the verge of killing myself, I didn't want to have another pre-existing condition should I need to change insurance companies. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That was a thought process. And and I'll be honest with you, what you're saying is sad, but the way you present it is actually humorous. And if you hear me laughing or chuckling in the background, I think that's what your audience does whenever they hear you talk. And I don't know if it's because you're making them feel uncomfortable or you're making them understand how ridiculous things are. It's um, the joke about spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger, gets a nervous laugh. Okay. And then the follow-up about, uh, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound a little disappointed? It gets a hearty laugh. And I think by that point, they realize. Okay. Because I'm not telling jokes. I'm telling stories about myself. And the reason I do add the humor is, and, the, and that's the reason I get hired oftentimes. We were thinking about hiring a clinician, but we saw, hold on, the guy's a comic? Uh, it's a lot easier to digest a serious subject like that if you give them comic relief every so often. What are some of the groups that you're speaking to on a regular basis? Uh, let's see. I just did. I was in um, Glenwood Springs, Colorado on Tuesday night. The Colorado News Media, Colorado Mountain News Media Company. They own a lot of newspapers in the little towns in Colorado. Okay. They had a six or seven week series on longevity and the final episode the final evening was one on suicide prevention and because i don't know if you know this but uh, utah colorado nevada they, they call that the suicide belt really i didn't the, know that yeah there's western states um the suicide rate's higher there than in a lot of states elsewhere in the country and so they 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 had me come in to be the final keynote speaker, and it turns out the publisher of the paper lives with depression and thoughts of suicide. Okay. And he said in a, in a column he wrote the day I was there, he wrote it the morning I was there, it appeared the morning I was there, he said the reason I booked Frank was because I, I believe that the issue is that we need to start the conversation. And... That's that's what I get paid to do. That's what my clients say over and over. Yeah, we want somebody to come in and start the conversation on suicide. Okay. And so I did the um, I did that event. I just did a college. I got another one scheduled October first in Flint, Michigan. Um, I've got a big. It's a safety meeting. Forty safety managers from around the world, from the construction company that built the Red Wing Stadium. And, I mean, you know, they have worldwide operations. Okay. And constru construction is the number one at-risk occupation. So I, I chose construction. And then veterinary medicine and dentistry, they're number five and six. Really? Yeah. 
I, but uh, for some reason, I find that hard to believe. But okay. Well, um, and the, the reason I chose construction veterinarians and dentists is because not only do they know they have a problem of the top ten occupations, they're really the only ones who are going after it. Okay. Uh, it goes like this: construction, excavation, mining, fishing, farming, forestry. Then you get into the white collar dentists, veterinarians, physicians. One physician kills himself every day in this country. Wow. And that's probably underreported because hospitals don't like to lead the league in physician right. suicide. Now, the other one you so, mentioned earlier that you said fishing? Fishing, yep. <laughs> Why? I have no idea. Well, uh, you're talking commer- like you're, you're talking commercial fishermen, correct? Yes. Okay. And one of the re- one of the reasons I think construction, fishing, farming, excavation, mining, they're all men heavy. They're all okay. male heavy. Okay. And of the suicides in the U.S. these days, 8 out of 10 are males, generally Caucasian, okay. age 45 to 54. Okay. That's the demo. Uh, and, and, those are the ones the that, is, and those are the ones that are probably not likely, the ones not likely to get help either. No, men tend not to, they call it toxic masculinity. Men tend to pull, try to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and think of these occupations. Construction, kind of rough and tumble, tough guys. Right. Same with fishing. For farming, you're very isolated. Generally, it's a solopreneur, solo entrepreneur. And they're subject to the weather, mm-hmm. uh, the finances, the tariffs. Oh, um, yeah. Farm income's down by half since 2013 or 14. I right. mean, the farmers are, I'm, that's the group I'm really worried about at this point. Okay. Because they're just getting hammered and they're not doing anything about it. I've approached the farm bureaus around the country and said, look, bring me in. And they said, we think we're offended you called and, and talked about this. I'm really? Like, You're like number three or number four on the at risk list. What do you mean? Yeah. I'd, They've got the head in the sand. They wow. Don't, I mean, I would honestly think if they know there's a problem and someone is out there willing to help, I'd accept the help. Yeah, I, and like I said, dentists and veterinarians and the, the construction industry, because they're number one. Um, okay. But you know what? I did, a, I did a big safety thing in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago. It's the VPPPA. It's a safety association, and it's manufacturers. It's Marathon Oil. It's Shell. It's, it's you know. <clears throat> big companies with lots of employees and lots of safety issues. So it's all about safety. Okay. And I was the first suicide prevention speaker they'd ever had. Wow. And I was going to do a breakout. I mean, look, Frank, we want you to do the breakout, but we're going to do three TED-style talks in the opening general session instead of one keynote, and we want you to do your 10 minutes on suicide prevention as the first speaker at the first general session for a 1,000 safety managers. Okay. So they realize, hey, you know, and the odd thing about I did a podcast with the with the guy on the floor there. Yeah. And he goes, Frank, yeah, I don't, he goes, I don't get it. He goes, you know, we're all about safety. We're all about prevention. We, we actually train safety managers to spot people who are either under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Right. Why are we not teaching them to spot people who are depressed and having thoughts of suicide? And my pitch to them was this. How many people here, I said, have had an active shooter drill? And mm-hmm. I mean, almost all the hands went up. Right. I said, well, here's the problem with that. It's a good idea. But in terms of mental health, mental health professionals would tell you that is a downstream solution. If you're doing 
active shooter, whatever, you're just trying to keep the body count down. Okay. The horse has left the barn. Right, right. You're mitigating the damages. So why not bring somebody, me or somebody like me in, teach all the uh, managers and the HR people, supervisors, how to spot signs of depression, thoughts of suicide. And then bring in somebody, and there's another guy who works at the Speaker Bureau where I did book for safety, who does conflict resolution. Okay. I said, why don't you bring in conflict resolution guy, train all the HR, all the supervisors, all the managers. So if you figure out the guy's depressed and having thoughts of suicide, and you figure out it's he's got a beef with somebody or more than one somebody at the company, then send everybody to conflict resolution and see if you can't solve that midstream so you never get downstream. Right. And it's where the, people are getting shot. And it's the whole idea of preventative maintenance is what you're doing because you're addressing the problem in the beginning stages and not trying to stop it after the problem started. Yeah, and it's the same reason that, you know, when you're when they're using some kind of paint, they're wearing a breather or where they're right. you know, they're working up a ladder. The um, OSHA just said if you're working on a ladder twenty four feet or higher, you have to have safety equipment to stop to break your fall. Okay. So they're worried about preventing all those things. But so why are we not? Why are we taking the active shooter route when we really want to go upstream and prevent, as safety professionals want to do? Let's prevent the problem from becoming, you know, an active shooter situation. So when did you start speaking on uh, mental illness and suicide prevention? Uh, suicide, you know, almost pulled the trigger. Right. I'd all. I'd always wanted to be. I mean, I always wanted to be a comedian, but I also, when I was selling insurance, I loved the motivational speaker guys. Okay. They, they, they were funny, but they had a message. So I always wanted to make a living and a difference, but I couldn't figure out how, you know, what I had to teach or tell anybody would make any difference to anybody. So I read a book by a woman named Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And she held out uh, taking your, you, you first talk about your messages and stresses, and then you talk about your successes. Okay. And it occurred to me about halfway through the book, I thought, oh, my God, I've got something to talk about. My grandmother, my great aunt, mm-hmm. me, my family, and I'm a comedian, so it makes it easy. And so that's, that was 2012, 13. In 2014, I applied for my first TEDx. Okay. And I got it. Oh, cool. And I came out of depression to a saddle, told the story of you know my family, my grandmother, my great aunt, and me. And we talked about Robin Williams because it's about the time Robin passed away by suicide. Right. And it helped me rebrand in the eyes of all speakers bureaus from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. And what I realized, Bill, going in as I was preparing for that talk, that even though nobody talks about depression and suicide much, all you have to do is mention those words out loud and everybody has a story. Right. And they can't wait to tell you. It's like they've just been waiting for somebody to utter the magic words. I, I consider myself the permission fairy. <laughs> can, I tell you, can I tell you my favorite story? Sure, go ahead. Okay, I work on the cruise ship, Holland America, about 12 weeks a year, doing just straight stand-up. Okay. It's just part of my, my, part of my health, mental health self-care plan, because I get to unwind, unplug. Gotcha. And I get to do comedy, get paid for it. So I'm on the ship, and uh, it's morning, and I'm in the Lido buffet, and I can't find a seat. And I look over, there's a woman at a table for two, and there's an empty chair. So I point, she nods, I sit. She looks up, she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, hey, did you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I did. I said, then I'm the comedian. <laughs> she starts laughing. She goes, wait a minute. What if I told you I hated the show? She, I, w- I would say then, uh, they tell me I look a lot like it. Um, 
she said, is comedy all you do? Because I get that question a lot on the ships. Right. And I said, no, I'm a public speaker. And I said, listen, if you don't mind me bragging a little bit, I just nailed down my first TED Talk. And she goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? And I, I, Bill, I knew what was coming. So in, I said to her, depression and suicide started to count down in my head. Three, right. two, one. She goes, you know, I tried to kill myself twice. Wow. We've just... She said, first time I was in college, kind of half-hearted, not that serious. Second time, far more serious, Frank. I graduated college. I graduated medical school. I had the knowledge, had the equipment. She said, Frank, I had the IV started in my ankle. Ooh. Had the suicide cocktail in one hand, the syringe in the other. We just met, remember? Right. She goes, and the phone rings. The phone rings. Now she's conflicted. Do I pick up the phone? She goes, well, maybe I better because it might be somebody who'd worry. I'm over interrupt. Picks it up. She goes, it was my 13-year-old son. Because I don't know if he heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said to me, Mom, don't do anything. So she said I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I used to do it that day because I know he would always feel guilty. Right. Wasn't there something he could do or say mm-hmm. prevent to stop it. my suicide? The yeah. good news, Bill, is there are things you could do. There are things you can say. We can cover those if you like. But yes. I said to her, um, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, does, does, he, does he know his phone call saved your life? And she goes, no. How do you start that conversation? And that became the, the theme of my TED Talk, Start the Conversation. And it's going to be the name of the book I'm writing. The book is called Life in the Exit Row, Starting the Conversation on Suicide. I was going to ask because you. Because I kind of live in the end. Yeah, and I was right. going to ask you if you were are writing a book, because just hearing what you have to say... I'm sure that um, in a in a written form, you'd be able to reach a larger audience and actually be able to help more people. Um, what I think is really interesting, and I want to ask you this question: when yeah. you when you when you do when you do your stand up, and it's just stand up, does some of your message from the suicide prevention sneak in, or are you able to uh, compartmentalize both of those uh, personas that you have? I compartmentalize. Okay. Um, I, I just do stand-up, which, by the way, is one of the nice things about being on the boat and just doing stand-up is I don't have to make any points. I don't have to teach anything. I don't have to save any lives. Okay. Um, because because like like the other night when, in, when I was in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, I said to the organizer, look, we'll do 50 minutes of keynote, 10 minutes of general Q&A, and I said, then I'm going to tell them. If they've got a question they want to ask, they want to ask in private, not in front of the whole group, like, I'm crazy, can you help me? Um, and that's the way I set it up. Okay. See me after the show. I'll, I'll, I'll be here until everybody gets their questions answered. And sure enough, half a dozen people lined up with a question. And I was doing a dental function. I mentioned my chronic suicidality, you know, uh, with the car, you know, get it fixed, buy a new one, or just kill myself. Right. And a woman came up, as everybody else is leaving, she's walking toward me, and I notice she's crying. And she gets to me, she's a dentist, she gets to me, and she's weeping, crying so hard she cannot speak. So I said to her, you have chronic suicidality. And she nodded her head. And I said, you didn't know it had a name. She nods. I said, you just thought you were some kind of freak. And she nods. I said, I bet you've been driving on the... 
Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumkey is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumkey will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumkey. Apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer. Restrictions apply. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. Freeway. You look up and you see a bridge above them in the distance. And you think to yourself, you know, if I turn the wheel just slightly, I can slam into that bridge above me and it would all be, it would all be over. She nods because that's a very common symptom of right. chronic suicidality. And I said, do you have a therapist? Nod. Well, do this for me. When you get back home, make an appointment with the therapist. Tell the therapist everything you learned today. And I said, for goodness sake, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you heard it from a comedian. And, and it got her to smile a little bit. And then we parted company. And a week later, I got an email from her. And she oh. said, Frank, look, I think I went to that dental conference simply to meet you. You have changed my life. And I, and I can't say that about a lot of people. So... It appears that what's happening is, by, by letting them know they're not alone, I may have taken these people just far enough off that path to suicide that they will live a, you know, a relatively normal life. And, Bill, it hit me the other day. I was standing outside in Montana in Billings after a college show. It's snowing. It's dark. I'm in the half light. I'm waiting on the guy to come get me. So picture this. I'm just snowing. It's, you know, there's like a street light a little ways away, so I'm kind of half lit. And I'm uh, thinking about all these people that come up after my show whose lives right. maybe I changed. And I thought, oh, dear God, I am George Bailey, and it's a wonderful <laughs> life. You know, the angel, perhaps the one that kept me from pulling the trigger, has shown me, like in the movie, what right. people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and, Interesting. and let them know they're not alone. My second thought, Bill, was, oh, God, I can't kill myself. I would take all those people with me. Yeah, well... I, yeah, because you yeah that would be that would be a a, a tragic um, thing for them to deal with one that they look to for comfort and uh, advice than taking his own life but no I I understand where you're coming from I really do and hopefully my audience is understanding that too and by the way you're listening to online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM and also watching us on Fayette TV channel 77 and we're streaming streaming live at iTalknet.com. So, Frank, I want to talk to you about your uh, years working with The Tonight Show. And what... Oh, yeah. You, uh, did you work with Jay Leno all 20, 20 years? Did he hire you, or who yeah, well, hired you? Well, what happened was, Bill, back in the day, because uh, I'm old, I'm 62, um, I can remember watching Johnny Carson in, my, in the suite at Carolina when I was in college, mm-hmm. watching The Tonight Show and thinking to myself, I wonder if anybody else in this room is thinking I want to be on that show besides me. Okay. Uh, so what Johnny would do is, <clears throat> Johnny was very mercurial. He would change his mind, drop of a hat. And so he'd come in famously and say to the staff on a Friday afternoon, look, I'm taking next week off. Uh, Monday nights was Best of Carson rerun. But that meant Jay had four nights to do a monologue and 18 jokes per monologue that's okay. 112 jokes he needs now so he built this cadre of what they called fax writers guys like me who are on the road doing stand-up 
We got a fax number filled out the independent contractor paperwork. Jay would put the call out. I'm working all next week. And we would, I would send in 12 to 24 jokes a day, topical jokes a day. Okay. Uh, and Jay would do one or two of mine every time he had a week's worth of, you know, tonight's show fill-in. And then, and then what they would do every now and then, Bill, is they would change the fax number and separate the wheat from the chaff. And I kept getting a new fax number. So oh. I was making the cut each time. And then when you got the show for real, they did the same thing. They cut it way back. But I got the, I got the, uh, you know, I got the fax number. So okay. uh, I had two jokes on his very first monologue. Uh, and the reason I, I got them was I know comics. They're lazy. Okay. There's two week break between Johnny and Jay. Two weeks between the two. And I know, knowing comics, knowing people don't go into comic comedy because they have a spectacular work ethic, <laughs> I knew they would be they would they would slack off during those two weeks. So man, I pumped in the jokes. Gotcha. And I had two and two in the first monologue. The first one was some guy in Texas, poor fellow, got stung to death by bees. And Jake goes, Yeah, yeah, they weren't uh, they weren't uh, African killer bees. Uh, they were just ordinary honeybees upset over the Rodney King verdict. <laughs> uh, that was the first one. And the second one was Dan Quayle had said famously about Murphy Brown, the yes. sitcom character who had a, had a child out of wedlock. Yes. Quayle said um, Murphy Brown having a child out of wedlock mocked the importance of fathers. And then Quayle gave me the setup, which was, where would I have been without my dad? I sign, and I guess Vietnam. Kill. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. That really is. Yeah. Cuz I I remember I remember the transition between Johnny and Jay because I um it was right when it was before Jay got tapped on the shoulder. I actually saw Jay do a uh uh stand up in this area where I'm at and it was very interesting because he had a different delivery style than Johnny. Johnny was a very oh, yeah. dry comic. And as I mentioned, being on the program, uh, it's hard to believe it's been uh, 20 plus years ago. I interviewed Steve Allen and Steve was talking about the transition from hosts from him to Jack Parr to Johnny Carson to Jay Leno. And he, yeah. he it was a very interesting comparison that the program still goes on, even with I mean, comedy changes. And each host yeah. has shown a difference and shown the, the, the style change in comedy over the last, what, 50 to 60 years of The Tonight Show, which is kind of amazing that the audience is still there waiting for it, even in today's society, where we have Internet, social media, all this other stuff where you can find entertainment constantly. But these programs are actually staying alive. Yes. And, you know, when um, John Stewart was on... The Daily uh, the Show. The Daily Show. Yeah. Yeah, famously, um, the demo, I think 25, 24 to 35, whatever that middle, that, that demo is, um, uh, overwhelmingly, over half those people uh, got their news. Right. <laughs> Not just comedy, got their news from Jon Stewart. I mean, that's, that's uh, I think, uh, again, that's, uh, you know, it's been, the, it's been the comics job since the time of the court jester speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless and those guys get away with a lot more and can tell the truth um because they couch it in humor so it goes down a lot easier which is the is the you know is the, is the technique i use with my really dark subject right um is it, it just makes it much more palatable uh relaxes the audience 
You know, they have sorbets. And that's why people hire me. They go, look, we're going to hire somebody, and we saw a comedian. Right. Um, the state of Washington has now mandated that dentists, hygienists, pharmacists, chiropractors, and other four or five occupations, all of them have to have three three hours of suicide prevention continuing ed before they can re- renew their license in wow. 2020. Yeah. That, that, I and, mean, and that is, that is really, again, I'm surprised that the, that, that that is a professional or professions that, that would need something like that. But I think that's great that the state is recognizing that they're having an issue with this, with these type of occupations and careers. Yeah. Because you know, when you, when you people going to the dentist sometimes talking to high just like talking to a bartender, they ask you how you are. You're liable to tell them. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And yeah. so if the hygienist has somebody in the chair and they say how you doing, and they say look, I'm I'm depressed and suicidal, yeah. the hygienist needs to know what the next step is. Okay. You know, and, and how to get them help. So that's I'm sure that's why the state of Washington is doing it. Is, is uh, but but again, um, I've been hired by a number of dental groups and booked for late this year, early next year, because they they realize they have to get it for for renewal. Right. And they go online. There's actually a Dental Speakers Bureau. They go to the Dental Speakers Bureau. They type in suicide speaker, and up I pop, because I'm the only one on there, and they're like, oh, my God, and he's a comedian. Because <laughs> they're thinking three hours of clinical, you know what I mean? Yeah, and oh, I got it. So... Yeah, so it's it just it appeals because it's you know it's a heavy topic. Three hours, it's got it's kind of like a comedy traffic school in California. They have the comedians teaching traffic school, you know, so you get a point taken off your license. Right. Rather, I mean, now you can do it online. So people, most people, do it online because you do it in no time. But back in the day, you had to do eight hours of it. Uh huh. So. so- when you talk to the groups, and I'm looking at your website right now, and, and you're saying that with the TED Talks, you were sharing your life's insights of mental and emotional health awareness with corporations, associations, youth, middle school and high school, and college audiences. So you're speaking to the teenagers um, in their setting and explaining them what's going on, because I know there's probably a lot of youth out there that have had the same thoughts. But how do you handle youth compared to handling adults? Well, it has to be age appropriate. Okay. Uh, and you know there there are I've got a friend who teaches this. She says, you know, if you're a speaker and you're giving one size fits all speech to an audience that may be three generations okay. in the audience, you need to be very careful because they they want to be talked to in a certain way. Each one wants to be they want the material presented in a certain way. Uh, you know, and personality-wise, they're looking for, you know, this and that. So, yeah, it, it has to be age-appropriate. And with teenagers nowadays and younger audiences, the social media, we've, we've started an initiative called, um, we're talking about um, digital media addiction. Right. And the there, there's not a c- clear connection between smartphone depression and thoughts of suicide there there may be a correlation or it can't be a coincidence but but since the since the smartphone ownership in the u.s passed 50 percent of the population owns a smartphone that happened in 2014 in 2016 66 percent 
of the U.S. population owned a smartphone, and in 17, it was 71%. And in that time, if you look at smartphone sales on a graph, okay. it's, you know, it's, it's obviously the line's going up. And the lines for major depressive disorder, self-reported in teenagers, and teenage suicide tracks that line going up. Wow. It's like three lines, you know, parallel mm-hmm. going up. So we do a lot of talking about, you know, disconnecting, how do you limit screen time without your teenagers, uh, you know, what, mutinying. What I think is interesting, too, and, and, I, and I think about this because with social media, with the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, the Snapchat, the kids are putting their best life forward because they're, they think that's what people want to see. But in reality, they may be suffering or they may be jealous of someone else's life that's actually creating a depression because they're not meeting expectations that, they're, that, that are false expectations that they think they need or should be doing because they're seeing someone else online who really isn't doing it either, but it looks like they are. Well, and that is the metric. That is a metric for young people nowadays. Uh, a friend of mine who's um, in the iGen, you know, Gen Z iGen, he says, you know, if he sees a woman who's really attractive online and she's only got 500 Facebook followers, he probably won't ask her out because she's only got 500 Facebook followers. Um, a woman who is, you know, marginally attractive, got 20,000 Instagram followers, and she's got something. So he's asking her out. So I said, well, that's like when I was a kid. If you were dating a quarterback or you were dating a cheerleader, he goes, that's exactly right. That was the metric back then. Huh. Uh, it also gets worse, Bill. <clears throat> One of the people who's involved with us in the digital tech initiative, we call it, is a psychologist whose daughter lives with um, depression, thoughts of suicide. Okay. She and her daughter were getting ready to go to ski one day. Beautiful day. They live in um, Boise, Idaho. Um, they're going to go ski. And so she's seen her daughter upstairs. Hey, get your stuff together. I'm going to pack the car and take off. It's a gorgeous day. The powder's deep. She goes downstairs. 30 minutes later, she comes back upstairs. All the lights are off in her daughter's room. Her daughter's lying on the bathroom floor. She's bleeding out. Ooh. Well, what happened was her daughter posted on social media she was going skiing okay. on Twitter, I think. And she got several messages back to back. I can't believe you're going skiing. You don't know how to ski. Uh, I've seen you in your ski outfit. You look fat. Um, you know, third one, why don't you just go ahead and kill yourself? So she attempted the social pressure in three or four tweets you know, given the amount of time and the stock that teenagers put in social media right. and how other people see you, drove her to over the edge, and she was bleeding out when her mom found her. Thank the Lord, she's alive and well now in, in treatment. But that's how powerful that can be in a young, you know, a young person in a young mind. And, and when you think about that, that's and it probably is more common than it's not. Because these kids are pressure, so so pressured in doing things, and I wonder. And again, this is I'm not clinical in any way, shape, or form. But I wonder if that's what what is increasing our opioid abuse in this country, the alcohol abuse in this country, and again with the whole suicide is because they're seeing this, they're being bullied online, and not only that, but they're seeing these perfect lives, and they don't know how to deal with it, or they can't make their life look the same way. And they can't keep up. And they can't um, cope with it. It's like keeping up with the Joneses, as we used to say. And so are they self-medicating? And uh, let's circle back to men age 45, 54. Yeah. Uh, in terms of opioid use and uh, alcoholism. The, um, 
a lot of people believe that the manufacturing jobs all went overseas, which is not true. Right. Roughly 12 or 15 percent went overseas. The other 85 to 88 percent were taken away by uh, artificial intelligence and robots. Right. And so you got a guy who's 52 years old, let's say, and he's uh, had a great blue-collar job. He's in the union. His supervisors make good money, middle-class lifestyle, and the job disappears. And men tend to tie their ego to their jobs. Their self-worth and to their jobs, 50, yeah. Exactly. And he's 52 and probably retraining available. But how long is it going to take him to get back to that salary that he was making and those benefits? He's 52. I mean, starting over at 52. So that leads to self-medication. And again, because men don't reach out, um, not likely to get help. Uh, that's one of the reasons that the male you know, suicide rate for those middle-aged men is so high. Right. It's the combination of uh, you know, they won't reach out, they've lost a job, they had their self-worth tied up in the job, and it just spirals. And, you know, and, of, and also of, in that age group, because I'm living in the middle of the Rust Belt where I'm at, um, I'm south of the city of Pittsburgh, which was the heart of the steel industry for so many years, you also see um, domestic violence numbers going through the roof because of the same thing, because they can't deal with their stress, and then how they deal with it is they take it out on someone else. Yes, uh, on, on, the, on the spouse, on the partner, on the family... And I'm going to be in Pittsburgh, by the way. I'm doing a I'm speaking to a, a Limbach, L-I-M-B-A-C-H, L-I-M-B-A-C-H, Inc. It's a big, uh, well, it's actually a huge construction company. Okay. They, they built the Red Wing Stadium. Yeah. They got uh, like 40, 40 employees full-time at Disneyland. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> they were at the safety bank. Okay. Um, and, they had, and they had lost a project manager. When they were building the Red Wing Stadium, the project manager... It looked like he'd fallen off the roof, uh, and he set it. He set it up that way so that his family would get more benefits because if it's an accident, then a workers' comp kicks in. Right. But there was evidence that he set it up that way and that he had done it himself. So when they heard me speak at the safety, you know, the safety convention, then they thought, okay, <laughs> this is uh, this is meant to happen. I I fully grown men rough around the edges come up to me at the exhibit hall booth you know where i was with the speakers bureau to talk who had lost friends to suicide and i mean these are grizzled guys yeah and i'm standing close enough nobody else can see and the guy's got tears streaming mm -hmm. down his cheeks because he's lost a friend of 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 um x number of years no indication you know would have done would have taken a bullet for the guy literally taken a bullet for the guy if he asked can't understand why he didn't reach out, why he could, why, why he didn't know what was. You couldn't tell the guy was depressed. So it's. Oh, well, you want to talk about the uh, symptoms, signs, and symptoms before we part company? Yeah, please do. Yeah, because that's what most people ask. How do I know somebody, uh, my coworker, is depressed? Um, there, the the these are certainly not an exhaustive list. These are just some of the top four or five with depression. Um, it's, it's eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Oftentimes they let their personal hygiene go because they just can't get out of bed to shower in time right. to get to work. Um, they have lost interest in social activities they used to take a great deal of interest in. Um, the uh, that's, that's probably the top four or five for depression. 
the question comes up, what do you say to somebody you believe is depressed? Well, it's almost more important what you don't say. You don't say, pull yourself up by your boots, friends. Turn that frown upside down. Right. Uh, have you tried fish oil? <laughs> um, I swear to God. Sorry, I, I, I that. find that got, humorous. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. My uncle got off, you know, he went on fish oil, and, you know, the salmon fish oil, and he got off all his antidepressants. And I was, I'm happy for him. Yeah. Um, I would take his guns away. But um, the what you do say to somebody you believe is depressed, and you do it, if you suspect they're depressed, you find a time and a place where you're in private with the person, Let perhaps let them select it. Okay. Do it at a time when you're in a good place mentally and physically. You're not tired. You're also not up against the clock. You don't have to be anywhere. Embrace yourself for, you know, you may hear some scary stuff. Okay. But what you do say is, look, um, I'm here for you and mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I understand that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the question that even I have trouble asking. You have to ask this, and ask it this way. Okay. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Okay. Don't say, you know, you're not going to do something stupid, are you? Yeah. You need to ask. You need to come out and actually ask the question, yeah. Yeah, when I I lecture, when I keynote, I say, look, if you can't do it, you find somebody that can. And I say, if your intuition tells you, if for no reason... You can think of, it pops into your head, I think Bob may be suicidal. There may have been some sign you picked up unconsciously. You know, some something he said or something he did. So always go with your intuition. So you have to ask him, are you having thoughts of suicide? Now let's say you, how do you, how do you spot somebody who may be having thoughts of suicide? If they talk about death and dying a lot, they Google death and dying. It appears as a theme in their artwork or their writing. If they give, if they're giving away prized possessions, okay, because they want to make sure they go to the person they want them to go to mm-hmm. when they're gone. And at the safety meeting, I met a guy who'd gotten that far down the path. He was giving away his prized possessions. Okay. Um, and then a counterintuitive one is they're depressed forever, and then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they're you know happy, like zippity doodah happy. Okay. It may be they've chosen time, place, and method. Okay. So they know their pain is finite. And that's another question I get from neuronormal people. Is why would, say, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade, somebody with everything to live for, want to kill themselves? My answer is, look, I didn't want to kill myself. My guess is they didn't want to kill themselves. They were like me. They just wanted to end the pain. Okay. So now, you suspect they're suicidal, what do you say? Or if they tell you they're suicidal, you ask them, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, that's very dangerous. That's the point at which, as a mental health first responder, your job is to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I think it's 1-800-273-8522. Or if they're a young person, there's now a suicide prevention text line because younger people are often more forthcoming in text. Right. Which is, you, you text, hey. Sorry. <laughs> we, have, we adopted cats, uh, Bill. Um, <laughs> of course, I decided right now is a good time for a cat fight. Of course. Uh, of course. I'm on the, I'm on the podcast, you <laughs> losers. Um, the, the, uh, text line you text the word help okay 
741-741. Okay. And one last thing, the question always comes up, when, if, when do you dial 911? If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you have to dial 911. Okay. Now, a question for you. Are you, even though everything seems to go going good for you and everything else, are you still having these thoughts, and will these thoughts ever go away? Uh, still having the thoughts. Uh, when I do my keynote, I tell people, look, for me and people like me that are wired like me, or are wired like I am, it's not situational. I've been the most depressed and the most suicidal when things were the best in my life. My worry was always, what's going to happen when, when I'm this depressed and things are not going well? And we all found out exactly what would happen. Yeah. So some people have situational depression. Got okay. fired, went bankrupt, broke up, and that's the situational, and it's generally tra- uh, transitory. You know, it just it happens and then passes. Okay. But for people like me, I used to say that I battle depression, but battle implies I can win, and I cannot. I can tie, like North and South Korea, kind of an uneasy piece. Right. Or I can lose and kill myself, but there's no winning. So I, I now say, and a lot of people do this, I now say I live with depression and thoughts of suicide. It's, it's an uneasy truce. Okay. Um, and I take medication. Uh, by the way, here's something your listeners might be interested in. A lot of people don't know this. If you um, want to go on a medication, there's a cheek swab DNA test for psychotropics. Okay. And they can tell you which, let's say, anti-depression medications work best with your particular metabolism. And I sat next to a pharmacist on a plane on Wednesday, and she goes, Frank, we offer that. She worked at Rite Aid. We offer that at Rite Aid for 40 bucks. And you're kidding me. $40 to find out which antidepressant works best with my metabolism. So that's something a lot of people don't know. That, 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 Eliminates a lot of experimentation and lab rat kind of go right. on, taper off, go on, taper off. So that's, that's you know, some people are four square against medication. I didn't take it for a long time, but I, I, I meditate, I medicate, I watch my diet, I exercise. It's a holistic sort of approach. Okay. I'm not strictly pharmaceutical. Okay. Um, so how often do you do your 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 public speaking? I'm I'm shooting for once one um, keynote a week is my okay. goal, and right now I'm at see, September. I've got one, two. I've had three this month. I've got four next month. So I'm shooting for one a week would be fine. Okay, for me, and then toss in some cruise work over the holidays because nobody nobody convinces to Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's right. normally in the summertime. I do a lot of I go up to I cruise up to Alaska because we live in Oregon. Okay. So, um, do you, I, and I, and I asked this before, but if you were given the opportunity of doing TV again, would you do it? Uh, television. Oh yeah. Lord. Yes. Uh, you know what, you know what my dream job is? What's that? I tell everybody in show business in case they get, they, they bump into somebody who could make this happen. I, I've always wanted to be the warm up comic okay. for a sitcom, a game show. Yeah. That would be my ideal job. Because I'm, I'm a comic, but I'm a even better MC host kind of okay. a guy. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I'd do radio again. I loved. I did an AM drive afternoon talk show in San Diego with a guy who's in Pittsburgh now. He's a cartoonist at the Pittsburgh paper named Steve Kelly, S. Kelly. I, I, I know uh, of him, yes. He and I did Kelly and King on KFMB in San Diego. Uh, Kelly and King, three-ish to six, Monday through Friday, because Steve was always late. Um, <laughs> Kelly and King. <laughs> And it was just it was just a general interest, fun, you know, we didn't do a lot of politics unless it was you know, we'd say like, What was your favorite breakfast cereal? You know how radio is. Right. You could talk about abortion or whatever, the phone doesn't ring. Right. You ask me what their favorite breakfast cereal is, the phones go nuts. Yeah, I did one where so, I, where the the guy I work with asked me how what pop tart what pop tart did I identify with? And it was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the phones went off the hook, yeah, I know. Um Yeah, so if I could do another I had that was the most fun I've ever had in any job. I mean, even beyond comedy, just two guys on an AM station that nobody cared about. It was a tax write-off. Nobody came down the hall that way unless we we took it off the air. Right. And we we just made it up as we went, and we had we had a huge female cue because it was really um, smart and funny, and it wasn't political. You know, like people yelling at each other. Right. 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 And and for they forget this, Bill. We got fired on April Fool's Day. Who fires two comics on <laughs> April Fool's Day? I thought it was a joke. Uh, that, 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 actually, it's probably appropriate to fire two comics on April Fool's Day, if you really think it through. Uh, it, yeah, well, it's the only job, Bill, I've ever had that I literally cried when they said you're done. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> we were just getting good at it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were making twice scale, and it was that point in time. Nine, it was two thousand. As you know, they're bringing in new general managers. Yes. Every 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 dollar the GM saved, he got ten cents in his paycheck. And you know, oh, I know that. Unfortunately, so yeah, Frank, I really appreciate it. That hour went by so fast. Um, again, um, in the future, I'd love to talk to you again, so we can go more in depth about what you're doing and how you're helping people, yeah. and and talk more about your comedy too. So, Frank, thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Bill. And uh, you have a great night. Yeah. Bye-bye. Frank King, he is a suicide prevention speaker and also a comedian here online with Bill Alexander. As you hear music, it's time for us to go. We'll talk to you next time here online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV, Channel 77. No matter where you are, there's probably a Speedway right around the corner. So whether you want a freshly brewed hot or iced coffee, fountain drink, or speedy freeze, Speedway's got the fuel to keep you going all summer. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. In the heat of the moment, you keep it calm and cool with a $3 medium ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew. Now $3 along with all medium cold brews. 
America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.